Well, this morning, we are starting out this morning with the video, and somebody must not want us to watch it because we have the video, we just don't have the sound. And Kyle Eidelman is the one who narrates it, and I'm a poor substitute for him, but I will do my best. So we will watch the video, and I'm going to do my best Kyle Eidelman imitation. On a little seacoast town, there was a team of people who got together and formed a little life-saving station. They had a little crude hut with just a few boats, and they would go tirelessly out to rescue people and save them when they had wrecked in shipwrecks. Many lives were saved, and many of the people that were saved wanted to join this little famous group. And they wanted to become part of it. And other people heard about it in other areas. And they wanted to join. And eventually they wanted to give of their time and their money and their efforts. The little life-saving area just grew and grew. And pretty soon, the people decided, hey, we need a bigger, better, life-saving hut. We need a comfortable place. And so they built a building. And they started hiring more crews and offering Um, more training and pretty soon they even got to the point where they didn't really want to go out as much to do the hard work of saving people it became more of a club they had their mission statement on the wall and they even had a memorial lifeboat that hung in the front of the club as time went on though they just simply wanted to move away from the key thing of rescuing people and they started to hire more and more people to do it for them then one night there was a very large ship and it wrecked and the crews went out and they got the cold and wet and half drowned people and brought them to shore and they were dirty and sick and in the new club they brought these people and all of a sudden it was a dirty new club and so the building committee got together and said hey we've got to build a shower house And get these people clean before they can come into the building. And we'll evaluate them and get them cleaned up. That little club still exists. It's now an exclusive club. And they are no longer distracted by life-saving. It's about the gathering of people. You will still find this club along this beautiful seacoast, but wrecks still happen. They're still frequent. But nowadays, the people just drown. I've watched this video with the sound over and over again. And at the very end, up comes this slide. And every time I see it, I am drawn to this slide. The church is not just a sanctuary, it is a mission. If a church is not primarily committed to going out and saving people, then call it something else. But do not call it the church. Will you read this with me, please? The church is not a sanctuary. It is a mission. If a church is not primarily committed to going out and saving people, then call it something else but do not call it the church. As we kick off our church-wide study, 
of Life on Mission, we're going to ask four questions today. And the first one of these questions is, what does a church look like that is on a mission? Now, it's not a hard question to answer or find the answer to. We start with the real simple commandment that Jesus gave. He, they, people, the Pharisees ask him, Jesus, what's the most important commandment in the Bible? And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. I heard recently a little thing that says, you can summarize that by saying, love dad with a capital D, love dad, and love his children. So now let's set that aside for a moment, and let's go to one of the last things recorded of Jesus saying before he ascended into heaven. You know it is the Great Commission probably, and it is found in Matthew 28 in the 18th verse. And then Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Keep in mind that Jesus was there at the creation of the world in Genesis 1.1. He speaks to us last in the next to last verse in Revelation. The Bible is all about Jesus coming to save the world. It is a love story written to us from our Heavenly Father. And he says, all authority has been given to me. And then he says, therefore, or because of this authority, go and make disciples of all nations. In other words, fan out now, Christians, and go everywhere and tell people about Jesus Christ. Baptize them into a relationship in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And teach them to obey everything. Tell them about the authorities of the Scriptures on their life so that they can obey what I have told them and it will impact their life and they will grow. That is a repeating type of commandment. In other words, someone comes to the Lord and then they start to go out and tell other people. And it might be, well, I, you know, I'm not, I haven't been a Christian all that long, but you know, I don't know this much stuff to go ahead and share the gospel with people. But the thing is, some of the most effective people as far as sharing the gospel are people that just came to Christ. They're baptized and they can't stop talking. They hardly know anything about the Bible, anything about Jesus. They just know their life was changed and they were saved. And they're all about the mission. Well, when we mesh these two commandments to love people and, take and tell them about Jesus, there is no greater love for people than to share the gospel. And that is the mission of the church. Just as much as that is the highest form of love, it's also the highest form of hypocrisy. If as Christians, we say, well, I love Jesus, and I'm going to heaven, but I'm not going to share it with anybody. The summary statement would be, I'm saved, but I don't care if you go to hell. Now, the answer to what a church on task might look like would seem to be very obvious, but the problem is that in the United States, the church has gotten derailed. The United States is one of the largest mission fields now in the world. There are 195 million Americans that no longer attend church anywhere. If they were made into a nation, they would be the fifth largest nation in the world. The percentage of Americans that didn't claim any, that don't claim any religious worldview in the United States was 15% in the 1950s, and now in 2010, just four years ago, it was 60%. 
Tim Harlow, who will be your guest each week in your small groups. In his book, he talks about the fact that his friend was on a trip to Dallas, Texas. And on that trip were 50 kids on a mission trip to Dallas from South Korea. If we live in the Bible Belt, the belt buckle would have to be Dallas, Texas. And now they're a mission field and receiving missionaries. Harlow goes on to point out that in his city where his church is at, that, and that is Chicago, that there have been over 900 churches that have closed their doors in the last 10 years. Think about that. 900 churches have closed their doors in Chicago. He has a passion about that, and you will pick up on that as you watch over the next six weeks. He was the president of the North American Christian Convention this summer, and the president always picks the theme. And his theme was remission. It was all about getting the church back on track, doing what it's supposed to be doing. But in spite of the fact that we are one of the fastest growing mission fields in the world, many churches aren't getting it. Discover is, and we can do a much better job, but many churches aren't getting it, and sadly, many Christians aren't thinking that way either. The mission of the church is not the first thing on their mind when it asks the question, what do you expect from their church, or from your church? They, they would want something else other than the church to be on its mission. I've been in church leadership of some way, shape, or form since I was 23. And I've thought back over the years as far as being a youth group leader or a deacon or elder or now in the ministry full-time, just all the complaints that I've heard. For the vast majority of Christians, they're very positive people, and you don't hear a lot of them. But I've heard a lot of complaints. I've heard that the music was too loud, that the music wasn't rocky enough, that there were too many hymns, not enough hymns. I've heard that the, the sermons were over my head. They weren't deep enough. I've heard that the minister <clears throat> was too dressed up. I couldn't concentrate, couldn't relate. The minister looked too casual. It was a distraction to me. I've heard that the, <coughs> excuse me, I've heard that we don't do enough for our kids. I've heard that we do too much for our kids. We need to do more teaching. I've heard it all. But as I reflected back this week, one of the things that I could not really remember ever having a conversation out of, say, the, the central staff for elders was someone who might have come up to me and said, Jim, I have a complaint. What is that? I don't think this church, now remember this, I've, I've only been here 12 years, but I've been at other churches in the past 32 years or so. No one's come up and said, I just think we're off task. We're not winning enough people to Jesus. And this is really bothering me. We're not winning. See, when we are not bothered by the fact that we're not winning people to Jesus, we're actually giving in. We're saying that's okay. Now, I want to use that mentality, that analogy, with one of our favorite, or for most of us, our favorite sports team here in Columbus, the Ohio State football team. I know that not all of you think that way or even care about sports, but you know some whacked out fanatical fan, right? 
And so I want to just kind of apply that way of thinking to the Buckeyes, and you'll understand why it's that way. If we applied that, we would go to Coach Urban Meyer and say, hey, Coach, um, could you take your coaches and fan out across all 88 counties in the state? And what we'd really like to know is if you could teach little classes about officiating. And that way, then, when the officials are wrong, we can intelligently yell at the TV like you are doing on the sideline. And then also, could your coaches fan out and tell us about what your mindset is as far as recruiting goes and who you're recruiting? And if you tell us, we will even pray for those that you're recruiting, your number ones on your list. We could go to Gene Smith, the athletic director, and say, hey, Gene, um, you know, the stadium's great. It seats a lot of people, but man, for four or five hours there to sit on those hard seats is really tough. Could we get padded seats in there? Some of you, though, may say, hey, let's stand the whole time. Take the seats out. Make everybody stand. Like the Virginia Tech fan that I was sitting by a couple weeks ago. I was nice to him. Gene, what about, we've got this super sound system and the big jumbotron, but really, can we get back to some basics like hang on Sloopy and, and Carmen, Ohio, and across the field or Maybe you want to go the other direction. Man, blow out the, the jumbotron. Keep it going all the time. Pump in Led Zeppelin. Let's, let's like really get, get the place rocking out. Send the student athletes into all the schools in all 88 counties so that people can see what a student athlete is supposed to be like. And pretty soon what's going to happen is the team's going to start losing. And so the season opens and they... They lose to Navy. And Dave Silvius does a dance in the hallway all Sunday morning. And then Virginia Tech rolls around and they lose again. And then Kent State comes in and blows us out 66 to nothing. And our response that's okay. That's totally fine. We're good with that. Now, anybody that knows an Ohio State fan, a true blue Ohio State fan knows that not only do we not tolerate losing, we don't even tolerate losing one game. They may not admit it verbally, but when they lost to, Ohio, when they lost to Virginia Tech, many Ohio State fans thought the season's a failure. It will be good. We can still rebound, but we're not playing for the national championship, so it can't be the best season possible. All over winning or losing. Let's talk about what happens in a football game. You have this ball, this football, and all you're talking about is a group of guys, and it's who can move the ball over the end zone line and over the upright the most. Whoever scores the most points moving across the end zone or over the upright wins the game against the opponent. And what you get out of it is a few hours of joy or lots of disappointment, maybe even that lasts the season, the universities clean up. They make tons and tons of money. Of course, the young men learn about discipline and hard work and, and uh, all the different things that the coaches try to teach them. But ultimately, it's about money, teaching the young men, and about joy and disappointment that lasts for a short period. 
Let's look at what happens, though, in the church. The game that's going on there. We are fighting over the souls of people. The end of the game occurs for a person when they move from this short life into eternity. And sometimes we will win the game in the first quarter or at halftime. And then sometimes we will win it at the end of the game. But sometimes we don't win it at all. In the church, our opponent is Satan. And the spoils are either winning a person for eternity to heaven or losing them to eternity for hell. We have no excuse to ever accept losing in the church. That's why we have to stay on the task of sharing Jesus with people. The great Vince Lombardi, who's now passed on, was known for being a great tactician. He won five NFL games in the two, five NFL championships in the first two Super Bowls. And he was known for being a stickler on basics. And one morning, after his, his really good team had lost to an inferior team, he called a practice. And the, puppies, the, the, the players came in looking like whipped puppies, fearful of this man. And he started to yell. He says, we are going to get back to basics today. Gentlemen, this is a football now, these guys are guys that have been playing football probably since they were little kids in the backyard. They know what a football is. But the bottom line is without the football, there's no football game. There's no football team. There's nothing to do without the football. He wanted to get back to the most fundamental thing. Now, Jesus created Vince Lombardi, so I wouldn't want to say that you know Jesus had a Vince Lombardi moment, but... If you can kind of go with me there a little bit, I think it would have been when Jesus was on the mountain ready to go to heaven for the final time and he looked and he said, Church, this is the Great Commission. Church, this is the Great Commission. And see, without the Great Commission, there's nothing to do. If he said, Don't tell anybody about me, doesn't matter, it's all over, goodbye. There's no church. The mission of the church is to tell people about Jesus. That's its primary task. So we move to the second of our questions that we're answering today. Who is the church? Well, first thing, it's not this building at all. There's nothing holy about this building. It's made up of ceiling, tile, electric, plumbing, concrete, carpet, wood, Aluminum studs behind the wall, drywall. There are people that are offended by that statement. The church is a holy place, but I would, I would say that there are plenty of churches that are steeped in tradition with beautiful stained glass windows and pipe organs in those churches. Some of them are dying. Yet some of the churches in the United States that are being the most effective winning people to Jesus Christ are taking place in movie theaters and schools. So it's definitely not the building. It's not the elders. It's not the staff. The church is the believers. It's the Christians. And for Discover Christian Church, it's the people that identify themselves. I'm a Christian and I identify, I am part of Discover 
Christian church. So the great commission that Jesus said, this is church, this is it, in essence what he does is he says, this is the great commission, now listen, as a Christian, I'm handing this off to you, tuck it under your arm and run with it. Every Christian has the responsibility. It's not a choice. They have the responsibility to share the gospel with, of Jesus Christ with people. The good news. And God is gifted in so many different ways. Some people can just share it like one-on-one. Other, peoples are behind the, other people are behind the scenes type of people. Some people are willing to work with the, the poor and the disadvantaged. Whatever it might be, God has gifted you some way, and we need to be about the mission of the church. The third question we need to ask is, what is the sense of urgency? Why do we have such a sense of urgency? It's pretty simple. The Bible talks about hell 54 times. And Jesus tells a story in Luke 16. And it's a haunting passage. You've got to understand that Jesus can look across the boundaries of time and space. And he gives this story. He says, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. This would be those that in this particular world are really well healed. They have everything going for them. They're successful business people. and, And it's apparent that this guy was not walking with the Lord as to what happens later, but he was really well off. And at this gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Apparently the rich man didn't share, but he was just longing to get just a couple crumbs. He said even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side, and the rich man also died and was buried in hell where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And so he called to him, Father Abraham. What did he call up to him? Did he say, hey, Father Abraham, come on, switch places with me. Send Lazarus down here. Or hey, what's going on with my Jerusalem Buckeyes? Are they winning? Who's in charge? Are the reds still plummeting? What did he ask? He said, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of my finger, his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received the bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Besides all of this, between us and you is a chasm, a great chasm that has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. In other words, you can't go from heaven to hell or hell to heaven after you cross over into the next life. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. What was he wanting Lazarus to do? Was he wanting him to get information? Hey, Lazarus, check it out. I always thought my little brother was wanting my company. Did he end up inheriting it? And you know, brothers then married the wives. Did my my second brother get my wife? I always thought he had an eye for her. Is my company growing? What, What did he ask? What did he tell Lazarus to do? 
He says, I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, if someone from the the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, if you do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Interpreted in today, in, in, in our era of time, it would be, hey, you have the Bible, you know what Jesus did, you've heard the message, you've seen the miracles, you have to make a decision now whether Jesus is who He is and if you're going to give your life to Him. This is a real story. Heaven is heaven and hell is real. This should cause us to have a sense of urgency. This should cause us to have our our parenting tempered to where the highest calling as a parent is that we would lead our children to the Lord. Not just get them to the point, okay, you're baptized, that's good, but that we lead them to that point and that's the jumping off spot and then we start to groom them and, and parent them and coach them so that they can go their whole life and withstand the spiritual attacks that will be put on them and that they will be set up to win our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren to the Lord. It tempers our attitudes towards those who come into our offices or into our yards or we sit by them at the games or wherever it be. It would temper our conversations and how we react to them. This urgency should also impact how we deal with people in conflict. That we would never do anything that would cause them to be driven away from Jesus. That they would say, wow, that wasn't very Christian. The theologian Carl H. F. Henry wrote, the gospel is only good news if it gets there in time. For the most part, this is a very positive body of believers, but I'm sure everybody gets put out every once in a while with something that goes on around here. Some maybe more than others. And I would just ask you to think about this. I think we need to be far less concerned whether we're put out and far more concerned whether somebody is left out. The fourth question Where is my Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea? Acts 1.8 says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. Now, to put that in terms of us today, our Jerusalem would be our circle of influence. Uh, Judea was, it looks like about the size of Ohio, I would say. Samaria was the northern area, the, the right above Judea that they didn't get along with. So like we're Ohio, and then like if we had a state right above us. You guys got it. The first, the first nine o'clock hour, they just missed it. Um, little, little football humor. And then we go to the other ends of the world. Now here's the thing. Um, I, want you, I don't want you to misread this. I'm, I'm all about missions. I love missions. I've been on three international trips and two stateside, and my, my two older sons have been on mission trips. My wife and my one son work for Lifeline Christian Missions, and I financially support them. 
if you give money to Discover, everything that comes in, 12 to 15% goes back out to missions. So even if you're tithing at 10% of your income here, then about 1.5% of your total income will go to missions. Overall, a relatively minuscule amount of money. The vast majority will stay here in whatever's going on in this body, reaching out to this community. If you decide, hey, I'm going to go on a short-term mission trip. I want to impact other people. I want to be impacted. I want to share the gospel around the globe. And you decide, I'm going to, my goal is to go four weeks at least out of my lifetime. The average American lives about 79 years, which is 4,108 weeks. If you go four weeks, that leaves you here in Jerusalem 4,104 weeks. The vast majority of our ministry occurs right here in our Jerusalem. So again, what is our Jerusalem? It's our circle of influence. You could draw a circle around us of, say, 40 feet, whatever it might be, 60 feet, and whoever enters into that could be considered your Jerusalem. It's the neighbors who step into your yard or you step into theirs. It's the people who you sit with at your kids' games or their ball at, at their plays or at their band concerts. It's the people, again, whose offices that you step foot in or they come into yours. It's the cashier who checks you out at Kroger's or Walmart or any other store. It's the server who serves you your supper or lunch or breakfast. That's your Jerusalem. And we need to be about the mission of the church. Now, I start to think at times, I, I get disappointed in myself because I get distracted. And a week goes by and I'm like, I really haven't done anything. I, I, I'm talking about back when I was an accountant and, and now even in the ministry, you can get so involved in doing things that you don't get around to just talking to people. And the stressors of this life and all the busyness take you away from this task. And I think Paul gives us a really good um, way it looks for him. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 3.13 3, 13 and 14, he talks about this. He says, forgetting what is in my past, forgetting what I did, and you've got to remember that he was there at the stoning of Stephen. He helped persecute Christians. And he also did some good stuff because I'm not worrying about my past. He said, but I am just straining forward. He goes back to this athletic appeal thing where he's just, you see this runner who's just pushing ahead and, and just pulling all his, all his energy to go for the prize. He says, and I'm going for the prize at the end. I'm going for what happens at the end of the game. And he says, I'm thinking heavenward. And I think too often... We just think about things in our own little life and we don't spend enough time talking about what's happening in the whole length of our existence. This is a, from a Francis Chan video if you ever want to watch it. He's a great teacher and you could type in Francis Chan and the rope and you should be able to find it. But this rope represents a timeline, and it just goes on and on. And this red part here is our little lives right now. And then this is the end of life here, and then this is what happens for the next millions and billions in life for eternity. 
And we spend so much time thinking about if, if I just do this right here in my career and I bump this up here and if I do this, I will be able then, if I save enough, that right here I will be able to go golfing and go to Florida and eat well. Right there. And if I do these certain things for my child and I get them in this, this, and this, like right here, then right there, they can participate in something that they really love and may never use again the rest of this time. We spend so much time worrying about our money situation, our 401ks or whatever, and we are like, I've got to make sure I got it here and got it there and get all this stuff paid, and we tend to forget maybe what happens the rest of the way out here. Now, don't misread me. Christians need to live well-balanced lives. We need to be planners. We need to be responsible. But the problem is too many people are only focused on this part. We need to make sure we take care of business here, but we need to be about this part as far as our own lives. This part here is just a small, just a blip on the screen compared to the whole rest of our existence in eternity. And when we have the mindset that is thinking like Paul said, heavenward and thinking about the prize, then all of a sudden it influences everything we do when we interact with our friends and our family and the people we work with and the people that we have conflicts with even. We are people that think past this blip. I would just encourage you, as you leave here this week, to think about whether you are about the mission of the church, sharing Jesus, the good news of Jesus, how His grace can cover our sins and we can be in heaven with Him forever. Maybe you've not made that decision yet. I would just pray that that really be on your heart. You can even do it this morning. You can come forward. If you believe that Jesus is who He is, you can confess Jesus is your personal Savior, and you can enter into a relationship with Him with being baptized into Him and have your sins washed away, and then you can go about the mission of the church. But for those of us that know Jesus, we need to make sure that we understand that the mission of the church, we are the church. That mission is ours. And we should have a sense of urgency about us because it's about winning and losing for eternity. And we've got to understand that our Jerusalem is our circle of influence. The people that enter into our 20 or 40 or 60 foot circle right around us. That's where we're called to carry out a life a mission. Will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I um, know firsthand how I have failed in this area myself. And uh, I ask your forgiveness for that. I'm sure that there are others in here that may have done the same. And I would pray that this is a time of renewal here at DCC, that we've sensed that there's just a growing passion in this church not only in the staff and the eldership, but in the people at large, and that we are about winning people to Jesus. I would pray that you will bless our efforts, but I'd also ask that you will give us encouragement in a task that is very hard. You said that people are very hard-hearted, and some people will not listen, but it's not our job to convince people and change their minds. We're to deliver the message, and we just ask that you will give us boldness, to deliver it. You will give us a heart of compassion that we will see past whatever people might be doing to say, hey, I want to love on that person and tell them about Jesus. I would pray 
that when we get discouraged, you will pick us up and dust us off and say, keep on going. I'm proud of you. Keep on going. Dear Heavenly Father, if there is somebody in here this morning that needs to give their life to you, I would pray that they're moved right now to do so, that they won't stand there. They're not guaranteed another hour. Dear Lord, please help us as we leave here this morning as a church body that we will do what you ask us to do. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.